mix of regulars and reserves was born of necessity. When the Navy's pre-war submarine building program went into high gear just before the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the Navy found it did not have sufficient qualified submarine men to man the new ships. The Navy's solution to the problem was to pick men who had experience, and after the war broke out, men who had made one or two or three war patrols to form a cadre aboard the new submarines, fleshing out the rest of the crew with reservists who had volunteered for the rigorous training at the Navy's submarine school in New London. By mid-1943, half of the men aboard new submarines were reservists, whose first experience at sea was aboard their submarine. The senior enlisted man aboard the Eelfish was Chief Torpedoman Joseph J. Flanagan, called Monk by his friends because of his perpetual scowl, his thick thatch of black hair, and his long, powerful arms which hung from a set of wide, sloping shoulders. Flanagan held a position found only in submarines. He was the chief of the boat, a classification that put him above the rest of the enlisted men and just below the officers of the wardroom. As an enlisted man, he was required to give rank its due honor. In actual practice, the chief of the boat reported directly to the captain and the executive officer. The leading petty officers were almost all regulars. Steve Petrashock, torpedoman's mate, a stocky, usually soft-spoken career man, ran the forward torpedo room with quiet efficiency and a dedication to detail. In the after-torpedo room, Fred Nelson, torpedoman's mate, hawk-nosed, a big man who stood well over six feet, ran his torpedo room with the same efficiency. But where Petrashock was quietly insistent, Nelson was more often noisily firm. Chief Ed Morris, a dour, pipe-smoking chief electrician's mate, drove his crew of electricians with a heavy hand to keep the electrical end of the eelfish's diesel-electric propulsion system in perfect operating condition. In the galley, Elmo Scotty Rudolph, like Chief Morris, a veteran of more than a dozen years of submarine duty, turned out three meals a day and a midnight snack for the crew of seventy-two men on only four large hot plates and two small ovens. When Lieutenant Commander Mike Brannan, USN, had reported to New London to take command of the eelfish, he was a veteran of three war patrols aboard the USS Mako. Two days after he had reported for duty, he sat with his wife Gloria in the sparsely furnished quarters the Navy had provided, holding his small daughter in his lap. "'I can't believe it,' he said, easing his heavy six-foot frame in a creaking wicker chair that was the only seat in the small living room other than a threadbare sofa. "'I've got one Academy man in the wardroom, John Olson, the executive officer. I'm lucky he's a hell of a good man. He was on the S-37 when the war broke out. They fought their way out of Manila and down to Australia.' but he's never been on a big fleet submarine. John's got his hands full learning the ship and making sure the regulars in the crew teach the reservists port from starboard. The rest of my wardroom are reserves. My gunnery and torpedo officer is Bob Lee, Robert E. Lee, if you please, a lieutenant, junior grade. He's a lawyer. My engineering officer is another J.G., Jerry Gold, and he's a dentist, for God's sake. That is, he graduated from dental school, but he didn't get a chance to take his exams or whatever they have to take to go into his own practice. Why isn't he in the medical corps if he's a dentist? his wife asked. Don't ask me, Gloria, Brandon said. The Navy apparently found out that Jerry has a lot of mechanical aptitude, so they made him a line officer and sent him to subschool. His number one man, the assistant engineering officer, is an architect named Perry Arbuckle. He shook his head. They're good men? Gloria Brandon asked. Oh, heck, they're wonderful, bright as hell, but not one of them has ever been to sea. Lee is so smart that he scares me. He's not very big, sort of skinny, but he's all brain. Jerry Gold is a big man, I think a pretty tough dude if you crossed him, but he's very willing and he's damned bright to boot. 
Arbuckle is a cagey sort. He's bright as hell, but he gives me the impression that he'd never blow his stack in a crisis. We'll have to have them over pretty soon. I know this place isn't big enough for the three of us, let alone entertaining anyone. We'll do it at the O Club. Maybe early next week. What about your other officers? His wife asked. What others? That's all I've got. I get one more man, not the two or three I could use, but not till we get to Australia. That means that Olsen and I will have to stand four on and four off on the bridge at sea until the other officers are qualified to stand a sea watch. He eased his small daughter off his lap and got out of the creaking chair with care and began to pace the living room, his heavy shoulders hunched. The trouble is, we need submarines so damned badly in the war zone. We don't have any surface fleet to speak of outside of a few carriers, and we're building submarines almost faster than we can find crews for them. Half of my crew are reservists who have never been to sea. You had some reserves aboard the Mako, his wife said. Sure, he answered, but we had time to train them. I don't have the time now, honey.